Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. It's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalaya. I'm your host. Delighted to be here with you this hour as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off. A huge thanks to everybody that came out to celebrate Software Freedom Day with us. As we mentioned last week, we were out at the University of North Dakota in Gamble Hall, and we had people that um, drove uh, a couple of hours to get to us. And so we appreciate you coming out. It was an awesome opportunity to spend some time talking about free software, talking about the value of free software and Linux, and just in general, hanging out with other people. If there's anything that, if you don't take anything else away from this show, what I would want you to come away from this show understanding is that Linux above software, above functionality, above security, above reliability, above everything else, Linux is popular. Linux is loved by those who use it because of the community that surrounds Linux. It's not so much about the technical superiority, although we do have that. The real value in Linux is the fact that there is community around. And so when we get together inside of the University of North Dakota and we ordered some pizza and we had a lot of fun, there was no quote-unquote structured activity. We all brought out our ThinkPads, and with the exception of one person, everybody had a ThinkPad, which really tells you something about Linux's proliferation on ThinkPads. We just sat there and talked and hung out. And Peter Denart, my friend and co-host of the Grand Forks Linux user group who was who really who put together the software freedom day because I didn't really do that much. I showed up and um, and, you know, paid for the pizza and stuff. But for the most part, it was, you know, he put all that together. It wouldn't happen without him. He brought in uh, he brought in Raspberry Pis. He brought in a very cool Intel Nook competitor that was based on AMD. And so we got to see that in real life. The cool thing about that device specifically was that. It had GPIO on it, and so you could have a high-powered desktop computer that also could interface uh, with GPIO. Talk about a great home automation controller or something like that, definitely something you'd want to check out. And so the ability to see that in real life and to see what other people brought in, the technology that they're excited about and passionate about and the projects that they've been working on was really fantastic. And so I'm, I'm, I was, I'm very thankful to everybody that took the time to come out and hang out with us. We'll definitely be doing it again. Again, if you're not familiar, the Grand Forks Linux User Group, we meet, uh, we try to meet the last Friday of every month. Sometimes we got to move it for to avoid a conflict with one thing or the other. But I would foresee for the next rest of the year meeting in uh, on the last Friday of the month. Also, I brought my kids this time. And usually I don't bring my kids, but after ta- talking with Ryan, my friend from Destination Linux, I, he always brings his kids to their Linux meetups, and I asked my kids, I said, would you be interested in going? They said, yeah, that would sounds like a lot of fun. So I took them there, and I kind of expected them to be bored, but they brought their ThinkPads, and uh, my son was playing Minecraft, my daughter was watching um, doll videos and princess videos on YouTube, but they sat around, and lo and behold, about 30 minutes into the conversation, I see my son start to engage about Linux. He has some opinions. He, he was on Unity, now he's on KDE, He's had a short stint with GNOME, and so he's developing his opinion of what he thinks is a good idea and and what he thinks works well for him. 
Um, and so to see him at all of nine years old be able to engage with other people in the Linux community and then the response from those that showed up to to treat him as an equal and say, oh, yeah, you have that opinion. Well, I have this opinion and, and discuss with him. I thought that was really I was really thankful for that. So uh, all that to say. If you're not in the area, then use it as inspiration to get a community started in your area. I would have told you six months ago, a year ago, that there wasn't that much interest in Linux in our neck of the woods. We're a small community. We're tiny. Uh, there aren't a lot of people that are Linux friendly. It's one of the reasons that AltaSpeed has done as well as it has is because, frankly, we don't have a lot of comp competition in the free and open source world and and so when you take and leverage the tools of freedom and open source all of a sudden we're able to stamp out our proprietary competition and it seems to work very well for us so uh it's great that we have that opportunity available to us now it's there because we're working on it because people like me people like peter people like the folks that come up from ndsu and fargo all of those people put the time in to build a linux community in their in their in their community and you can do the exact same thing and so i would encourage you if you're not in the area you can't join us then start a community in your area if you don't have one but get involved with the linux community because that's how we grow again your calls always front of the line 855-450-NOAA that's 1-855-450-6624 colonel the northeast welcome to ask noah you're on the air yeah hey how you doing pretty good how are you sir so last week you had somebody on talking about the new FCC regs that they're going to be enforcing regarding the handheld units and other radios that can communicate both on FRS as well as the handbands. Mm -hmm. um, you had mentioned the uh, UV5R, but I, I've been looking into getting into ham for a while, and upon doing some research, it looks like the UV5Rs are mostly gone. And in addition to that, there's a few other things I came across that I was wondering if you can fill me in on some of the technical specs, mm -hmm. so to speak. Sure. I will do my um, best anyway. Bale, yeah. Um, Balefang seems to have two other units that are almost as popular, um, but they're slightly less only due to the price increase. They're still less than 100 bucks. One in particular I heard being mentioned was the uh, UV5X3, which is their tri-band, um, instead of being a dual band. And I was wondering, as far as ham goes, am I going to be using the extra frequencies much? No. Uh, the, um, so the, the, okay. so, okay. So the, let, let's start with, let's break this down for anybody that doesn't speak ham. Let's break it down a little bit. So, okay. So the most common frequency used in amateur radio, if you're talking about local communication, that is to say how you would use ham radio to supplement your cell phone, right? When I'm running to the grocery store, I need to find out if we're out of milk. And I ask my wife, we have a radio in the kitchen. I have a radio in my car. How do I do that? We're using the two meter band or 140 some megahertz, somewhere between 144, 148. And the reason that that band is particularly popular for that particular use is it pretty much almost, not pretty much, it does identically uh, duplicate that of, you know, EMS and fire and police and stuff like that. All of their radios are typically either VHF or UHF. And so that 144 megahertz uh, works very well for around town communication. I can I can speak directly from my mobile radio back to the mobile radio at the house, or we actually have a personal repeater that we use. And so 
the VHF radio talks to a tower, a 50-foot tower, and then that tower then takes my signal and repeats it all over the city and is picked up by the house, which, by the way, is the most common way to use uh, a VHF radio. So I wouldn't purchase a handheld radio unless it supported 2-meter, and unsurprisingly, all of them do, including um, the Beofung UV5X3, or I'm sorry, 5RX3. The second band that I would want on there, which it also supports, is the 440 or 70 centimeters. And the 440 megahertz band is the second most popular um, repeater frequency and or mobile use. In fact, in some areas, especially if it's congested, they actually have a larger presence with 440 than 2 meter. And the reason is because, again, if you're just getting into ham radio, we met we, we the, when we talk about wavelength when i use terms like 440 or 2 meter we're talking about the wavelength of the frequency right and so the way that we find a wavelength of anything is we take the speed of light 300 million meters per second and we divide by the frequency that we are questioning and we will get the the wavelength of that frequency so for example 300 divided by roughly 150, I'm rounding, uh, gives us two. And that's how 140 megahertz is two meters, right? It's actually a little less, but we call it two meters. Um, If you were to make that same calculation, uh, take 300 divided by 450, which is the UHF band or 440, um, you're going to wind up with something slightly less than one. That's how we get 70 centimeters. So the third band that is is included in here is the 220 megahertz band. Now, memory serves that is six meters, I believe. Here is the issue with six meters. The the amount of you, first of all, I'm sorry, it is 1.25, not uh, not six meters, my mistake. the problem with one. I was one... going to say, I actually have the chart in front of me. <laughs> oh, you're cheating then. <laughs> 54 megahertz. Yes, yeah. Am. So, so here, here's the issue with 1.25, and the, the reason I don't know that off the top of my head is because nobody uses it. Um, there, it's it's a hobby because ham radio is a hobby. Essentially, what they have done, what the FCC has done, is they've gone to every single band imaginable and just carved out a tiny little slice and said, "Here, as ham radio operators, you can use this." And so, if you remember. A couple of years ago, T-Mobile and actually audio uh, pro audio companies were fighting like cats and dogs because T-Mobile wanted to expand into a 500 megahertz range. And the um, pro audio equipment that were using these wireless mics already existed in that has as did, you know, a ton of TV stations and all sorts of stuff. And so what that resulted was they took over a bunch of those frequencies and everybody else had to shift. So you had to get rid of your wireless microphone receivers and you had to sell them at a, at a discount because they were no longer legal to use. Um, obviously, we are still going through a TV repack. Most people don't care about those kinds of things, but it's something that costed hundreds of millions of dollars across the country because they wanted to eat up this frequency spectrum. And the, the reason I bring that up, the thing that I want to point out there is that the federal government has said we don't care how much money T-Mobile throws at us. Amateur radio operators get to keep that 440 band. They get to keep that tiny little slice, even though it represents millions of dollars. And that's even more true when we get into some of the lower bands, when you start getting into, you know, 14 megahertz and 10 megahertz and 3 megahertz. And the reason that those bands represent so much money is because with 100 watts, which is not very much power, by the way, it's equivalent to your to the light bulb in your house. With 100 watts, you can talk around the world on 14 megahertz. And people do routinely. 
Um, and so because it's so valuable and because we can't duplicate the scientific functionality or the physics of a 20 meter band, for example, again, 14 megahertz, because it's so valuable, because you can speak across just about anywhere, uh, there's a lot of companies that would like to obtain that frequency spectrum. But the opposite side of it is true, right? We also get slices of frequency spectrum that are not particularly valuable to people because they don't particularly work well. And the 1.25 uh, meter band is one of those. It's a hobby band. It's like six meters. That's why I thought it was. It, you know, it exists. Do people use it? Yes. Is it fun? Yes. Are you going to find a ton of people to talk to unless you live in a major metropolitan area? Absolutely not. The vast majority of repeaters that I'm on are two meters or 440. And if you're not on a repeater, chances are you're on an HF rig and you're speaking on 14 megahertz. So for all of those reasons, a really long-winded way of saying there's nothing wrong with the UV5R X3. In fact, if for 49 bucks, if I were in the market for a Baofeng radio, it's absolutely a great alternative to the UV5R. Are you getting anything with that 220 uh, band? Nothing particularly useful. Okay. Um, now, does that still hold true if I wanted to get in involved with Aries or NITS? Yes, because almost so Ares is the amateur radio emergency service. Uh, and, and so what it is, is it's a volunteer organization that allows amateur radio operators to use their skill to function uh, in an emergency capacity. So, for example, let's say there's a flood. OK, the police have to do the big jobs like blocking off the road and arresting people that are trespassing and all of those kinds of things. But for the for the for the less important, non-critical stuff, but still require a presence. So, for example, somebody comes up and says, my grandma lived at blah, 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 and uh, she was evacuated because her block was evacuated. Can you help me find her? Well, the police don't really have time to I mean, they, they would have to make time in absence of another solution. But the police don't necessarily want to be expending resources on those kinds of things. The fire department has more important things to do than expend their resources on those kinds of things. And so that's where the amateur radio emergency service or areas operators come in. We have the same equipment, in fact, arguably more reliable equipment than the police department because we're not tied to some radio company and their infrastructure we own our own as long as we have sunlight in the uh, sunlight in the sky that we can power off of solar a battery bank that we can power out of our car or ac power we can plug into we'll find a way to get a message to every other operator in the area and that's incredibly useful to emergency service and so there was i give you a perfect example in my hometown the uh we had you know we had a uh, incident where a place caught on fire and as Aries operators, we came out and helped direct traffic. Um, just this past weekend, we had there was a large parade, and we were able to go out there and provide communication uh, for that parade to make sure that all of the floats, the all of them that went into the parade, came back out of the parade, and nobody was injured, nobody got hurt, nobody got lost. And we've done the same thing with bike races. All of those kinds of things are things that amateur radio operators do. And because of the way that the FCC regulations are laid out, we're not allowed to charge for those services. So it becomes a real benefit to the community to have people that volunteer to do this. And it's really fun too, right? The the there is some there is the, the the inner child in most men to be able to go behind the line that nobody else is supposed to go behind to put on a vest that that only uh, a certain people wear and get to uh, essentially tell people what to do there is an innate childhood fun in doing those kinds of things because you're behind the quote unquote you know line where where you get to see all the cool stuff and that's fun uh, at least it is for me so there there's there's benefits all the way around both to the operator and to the community who house the operator but uh, all of that communication occurs on either two meters or 440 
Uh, it almost never occurs on anything else because two meter and four forty are the go to standards for local communication. So if you're if it's not an HF communication, in other words, you're not fighting a wildfire and you have operators scattered around a state. If you're doing a local event, um, the chances of you which, by the way, if you were doing that, you wouldn't be using a handheld. If you are looking for a handheld to participate in areas with anything that I would look for, something that supports both two meters and 440, which this one definitely does. Okay. The other thing was is that the PTT style, they're listing single and dual. What I'm only familiar with, you know, you push the button, it turns on, you talk. Mm-hmm. What exactly is the single duel that they're talking about? So the, so the, and this is actually one of the things where I believe that these Chinese made radios are actually somewhat more innovative than the quote unquote good radios, right? Uh, a good radio being Kenwood, Yezu, Icom, those kinds, the, the, the big name brands. Um, and uh, as I've seen anyway, most of them don't support this functionality. Only the cheap Chinese radios do, and it's actually very handy. Uh, so on a traditional handheld radio, let's say you had two frequencies programmed in. Let's call them 146.94, and that's our two-meter uh, frequency, and let's call it uh, 442. I'm just making numbers up. On a normal radio, you would select which VFO or which tuner you want to utilize. So you would select the two-meter tuner, and then when you push the push the talk, it transmits on 146.940 megahertz. If you were to shift and use the second VFO, the uh, UHF VFO, and you're transmitting on 440 megahertz, now when you push the two uh, the uh, the push to talk, it's going to transmit on that frequency, and you can switch and of course receive uh, correspondingly, right? Well, with the Baofeng, it's actually really interesting. Because they have two tuners, it can actually simultaneously monitor both the VHF and the UHF, but it gets better because you actually have two push-to-talks. You have a top one and a bottom one, and if you push the top one, or you know, however you set it up, you, if, you have, if I have my, my, my VHF VFO on top and I push that one, I'm transmitting on, on my VHF frequency. If I push the bottom one, I'm transmitting on the UHF frequency. And so without pushing any additional buttons, you can communicate with two different people or two different systems. And I'll tell you where that has become particularly useful to me. I have a what's called a crossband repeater in my car. And essentially the way a crossband repeater works is I have a radio that supports both 440 and two meter that is that sits inside of my vehicle. And when I keep when it listens on the 440 side and it transmits on the two meter side. And so the way that I have my handheld set up, when I transmit 440, it my my car picks up that signal, spits it back out over two meter to our local repeater. And so if I'm in a if I'm in a dicey environment, I'm inside of a massive metal building and I can't get a signal out to the repeater directly. I can use that second. Uh, I can use that second VFO. I can use that 440 uh, band to key the repeater at the basically the repeater in my car to then send the message back out to the to the to the main repeater. And so it's a way that I can make sure that I can always get a signal out even if I'm in a crappy environment. Because no matter where I am, I've got a 65 watt radio that's out in my car. So even if the little handheld's only four watts, five watts, and I'm buried in a basement somewhere, I can probably hit my car in the parking lot at least most times. Um, and so those are the kind of things that you can do and what's super beneficial. I try and hit the main repeater. It doesn't work. I just hit the button on the bottom and talk through my car and that will get the signal out. So I find those kind of features to be very, very useful. But that's what they mean when they talk about a dual PTT or dual push to talk. There are two buttons for there are two push to talks. One goes to each band. Now, it's been explained to me 
although I've never experienced this personally, it's been explained to me that the reason the larger manufacturers don't do that is because it can be confusing to people to know which push to talk uh, to push. They accidentally transmit on the wrong band. I've had the I've had a, a, a radio with two push to talks on it for three years. I've never once done that. So I don't know what they're talking about. But apparently they think people are too stupid to keep two buttons straight. Well, and, you know, you work with the general public. You understand the general public and their um, lacking with common sense. Common sense yeah. is not that common. It's not. But you know what, though? Every cell um, phone on the face of the planet has a volume up and a volume down. And I, I, I mean, I, I just ask, ask yeah. your fr- I mean, I just don't run into many people that are like, yeah, you know, the, the problem with those volume buttons are there's two of them. And I, just, I constantly get them confused. Sometimes the volume goes down. Sometimes it goes up. I never know what I'm doing. Like, I don't know. It just does. It seems like a cop out to me. Yeah, well, I will say that I was uh, working with some radios in an environment that had um, a, probably a dozen different channels programmed into them. They were the big commercial stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were forever having people transmit on the wrong frequencies. Really? Even though they were handed the radio, said, <laughs> don't turn that knob. That's how you change the frequency. Don't touch that. And forever they were they kept jumping to the wrong frequencies. So yeah, <laughs> they, you know, <laughs> if the next if anybody ever wondered why uh, ham radios you can program from the front panel and commercial radios just have a little selector knob, that exact that what you just explained is why because people can't be trusted to program their own radios. So what we'll use to do we'll take a little uh, whiteout and we'll just take a whiteout and make a little line on channel you know one if that's what everybody's using or two and just tell everybody hey make sure your channel dial is on the the one with the little white line that's what you need so there's a couple different ways to get around to it one thing i want to do if you're up for an unsolicited piece of advice absolutely check out the tyt md380 and 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 this is a it's a it's a little bit more expensive it's about a hundred dollars but the thing that i really like about the tyt md380 is it is a dmr radio a digital radio so instead of sending analog audio it is sending um ones and zeros it's encoding your audio uh, as as I well not IP but it's encoding it as a digital signal and then it's sending it to the repeater as a digital signal. Now the nice thing about that is you get more for with less bandwidth. If you don't have a great signal, you're still able yeah. to communicate a message in perfect clarity. The other thing I like about it is the software functions identically to the Motorola turbo radios. And so I, I don't know if they just flat out ripped it off or if they just somehow got it extremely close. But the boot up tones are the same. Screen layout is very similar. Uh, the functionality feels very similar. Like I have both radios. I have a $1,500 radio and I have a $100 radio, and I have a hard time telling the two apart. So if you're looking for a an, an alternative to the Beofung, I would highly ch- check out the TYT MD380. It also does support analog communication. So just because you purchase this one and it's capable of DMR does not mean you can't uh, you know, communicate on an analog system. The only downside to this radio that I found is you must program it from a computer. You can't do it from the front uh, from the front panel. Now, is that one a chirp or chip or whatever it is compatible? Uh, I don't know. I, I'm not familiar with, with uh, chirp. I'm sorry. Um, it's, it seems to be the gold standard for programming the radios from a computer. You plug in via USB over a, I forget what kind of cable, and plugged into the side of the radio and then let you program in all your channels. Huh, interesting. Well, I just did and a quick... It runs a, on Linux. A quick Google search says yes. So... Uh, TYT MD380 okay. Allen Moss nine months ago, uh, yeah, it, it would appear that it, it would appear that it does work. So I, I don't know. I I, w- I would give it a shot. I've not I've not personally used it. I programmed them once and then I kind of I kind of forget about it. But um, but yeah, I, it just if you're looking for another alternative, that 
I've been extraordinarily happy. In fact, I'm happier with the quality of that TYT MD380 than I am with uh, any of the Baofengs I've had. Um, but it's also a little bit more expensive. But did did I act, did I answer all of your questions? Um, I do have um, one other. Okay. Um, the other feature that TriBand seems to have is the DTMF programmable. Yes. Um, whereas the UV82, which is the other one I've been looking at, doesn't. Is that something that I'm going to really use on a handheld, or is that more for base stations and mobile like vehicle mount units? Depends on what you want to do with it. So where the DTMF pad is, is useful is... Essentially, it's a way of signaling a repeater to do a given function, right? So a, a, a go-to gold example of what the DTMF pad is for is auto patch. So you can make phone calls from your ham radio You can uh, if you have an auto patch on your repeater. And so essentially, there's usually a, a special function, you know, like star one brings up the dial tone. And so you dial star one on your DTMF pad, you'd get a dial tone. Now you can dial a phone number, make a phone call, and then, you know, star two or whatever disconnects it. Um, but there are other functions that even in the absence of making telephone calls, there are other functions that the DTMF pad can perform. So, for example, in our area, we have something called a superlink. And the superlink is a series of repeaters that are connected via RF. So there's no one thing that can take the repeaters down because they're all talking to each other. It's kind of like a mesh. And the way that you bring repeaters on or off the superlink system is with DTMF tone. So, for example, there's a DTMF code to connect our local repeater that we talk to into the superlink system. And then there are other DTMF uh, uh, codes that I can bring other repeaters into the system. So, for example, if I want to talk to somebody, you know, uh, three states away or whatever, I, I have the option of doing that if I know their their code and mine, and I can bring both of the repeaters into the system. So it, it's useful for doing signaling and stuff like that. I'll, honestly, my view on that is that DMR is fixing all of that with talk groups. So instead of having to try to bring things okay. into one massive system. Now we're just doing that digitally with talk groups. And so it's more like a, my radio receives a signal. It just knows to ignore it because I don't, I'm not interested in that traffic. Uh, and so that's what a talk group is for. So I, I don't think it's going to be around much longer, but I, at the moment I wouldn't own a radio without a, with at least one. I would, I wouldn't go without at least owning one radio that has a DTMF pad because it's useful for that reason. Okay. Um, and then as far as they're going to be the actual – hold on, I got it right here um, – the actual language of the FCC ruling mm -hmm. or regulation or whatever you want to call it is, you know, no person sh shall sell or offer for sale handheld portable radio equipment capable of operating under this subpart FRS and under any other licensed or – Licensed by rule radio services in this chapter, blah, 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 blah. Um, the open source world being what it is and ham operators being what they are, do you see possibly like somebody like Baofeng releasing a, like a Gen 4 of the UV5R and then the ham operators being able to flash it back to a Gen 3 firmware? Maybe. Here's the problem. So they with can continue to sell the hardware, but we can put the functionality back. <laughs> it's That's possible, and I thank you very much for the call. I do have some other calls i, I got to get to, but I, I think that is a possibility. I think the reason not to do that from Baofeng's standpoint is that's essentially what Yezu has done. There's a solder joint inside of the radio that any ham radio that's been a license for five minutes knows about. Um, they The FCC said you can't 
have this radio transmit on frequencies that are not allowed. So they went, okay, we'll block it. So they blocked it with a solder joint between two posts. That is right on the back of the radio. So you take four screws out, you take the take the thing out, you take your solder gun, you heat up that solder joint and suck out the solder or however you it is you want to go about removing a solder joint. That's the way I would do it. Um, and it unlocks the radio to all of those frequencies. And because Yezu sold it to you in a configuration state compliant with the FCC, there's nothing stopping you from opening up and modding it. Um, so they, 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 they comply with the spirit of law. They don't comply with the, or they comply with the letter of the law. They don't comply with the spirit of the law. They let people do it. They just make it trivially easy to undo their changes. Um, and so for that reason, I feel like if Beofunk starts down that path, um, they're just, they're, they're essentially making a, a duplicate of a Yezu radio. And if I have my choice between the two, I'm probably going to pick the Yezu unless there's a massive price disparity, which if Beofung is going through the certification process now of FCC, they may not have. So 855-450. No, it's 855-450-6624. Joel, Georgia, you're on Ask Noah. Good afternoon. How's, how's it going on? Noah, by the way, how do I sound? You sound great, man. Yeah, so this is Bluetooth, by the way, just... Bluetooth 5, just putting that out there just for context, so if it does sound pretty bad, so... Nice. No, it sounds good. <laughs> Alrighty. Alrighty. So, um, what I wanted to talk about today on the show, since it's been a while since I've been on the show, and for timing, hopefully it's going to be plenty of timing for people. Uh, my local B-Sides is actually going to be happening in 10 days from today, so um, if, anybody's inter- if anybody's in the Augusta area coming to and interested in talk, uh, go in MCOSEC and all that, uh, besides Augusta is being held at uh, being held in Augusta. The website for uh, website for all details is besidesaugusta.org, um, and also it's on the same week as the Security Onion Conference. If anybody else is coming to Augusta for that conference as well, uh, that conference is uh, has to do with um, the Security Onion distro, which is a distro that has to uh, uh, Linux distro that has a lot of security tools and is used for various aspects of uh, InfoSec. Uh, I don't go to that one, but I know a lot of people go to both B-Sides Augusta as well as uh, the Security Onion Conference. So I just want to spread that word out there if anybody's interested in coming, if anybody's coming over to the birthplace of James Brown and wants more than just a small town to hang out in and wants to talk about technology, there you go. That's awesome. Thanks for bringing that to our attention. I appreciate it. Hey, really do appreciate it, and uh, been a long time. No, hopefully, I can make it more of a more of a habit to come on this sh- on the line because my shift's changed. So hopefully, I can call more often. I would like that. Did you have a question too? Uh, not necessarily a question, more or less. Um, I'm also, ex- if you want a statement, I'm excited for the pine time. So, yeah, that's all that. Some uh, my call screen it had something in there about ThinkPads. Uh, nothing ThinkPads. No, 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 no. I, that was probably from last call. Oh, okay. Awesome. Well, thanks for the call, man. I appreciate it. Really appreciate it. 855-450. No, it's 855-450-6624. Minimac joins us in our interactive mumble room. Hey, man, welcome into the Ask Noah program. Um, long distance call from Switzerland again. Hey, well, thanks for taking the time to be here and thanks for joining us. Yeah, it's my pleasure. In fact, so I have a question on a subject that you touched surely more than once in your show, and you're the pro on that. I want, uh, want to have a CAT6 wiring in my house. So my idea is to replace some of my phone jacks I have here with some LAN Wi-Fi in-wall access points because I have some good access to these cable ducts, you see. 
Now, I do not know what brand I should choose for the Switch and the access points. You know, the, the possible brands are like Unify, Cisco, Microtech. I would like to have some comments from you that might help to me to have a good decision, in fact. Sure. Uh, so let's start with uh, let's start with this. Let's start with what I probably wouldn't do. If you're, what are you expecting these switches to do? Okay, so I have a router which is provided by the internet provider, and so I want to hang, uh, put it in bridge mode, and have a switch afterwards. And then in some key rooms, I want to have some in-wall LAN Wi-Fi access points. I need some LAN uh, connections to my office computers, and for the rest of the rear rooms, Wi-Fi connection will be okay. Okay. Let's say like that. So what you're describing is basically like the perfect environment to use Unify system top to bottom. Um, I, I get nervous with Unify switches because they do lack some enterprise features if you're installing it in an enterprise environment. If you, if you, but if you don't need stacking, if you don't need true multicast, if you don't need IGMP Layer 3, if you don't need NetFlow, if you don't need PVSTP, if you don't need officially out-of-band supported management, if you don't need TAC ACS, if you can live without those things and nothing in your scenario requires any of that, um, then Unify is a great choice. If just if somebody is out there and go, oh, I do need some of that. If you do need something else, then I would suggest something like uh, HP, because HP, the thing that I like about HP over Cisco is a couple things. So first of all, they allow you to update your firmware without having to buy a contract from from the manufacturer, which is nice. But the second thing I like about uh, HP is when you when you SSH into a Cisco device, you have to know the CLI to be able to do anything. Um, and it's not difficult to use. It's absolutely worth your time to learn iOS because it's one of the most popular uh, platforms out there. And they have done a very good job of keeping it consistent through the years. So it's I, I recommend you learn iOS. But if you're a new user and you're just getting into this and you want to be able to take something out of the box and actually use it, uh, Cisco can be a little daunting from that regard. The nice thing about HP is when you SSH into an HP switch, the first thing you get, if you've ever seen the PFSense menu where it has like option one, Configure interfaces, option two, show I, I, you know, IP addresses that are assigned, option three, configure VLANs, whatever. Like it has a little built in like menu CLI when you SSH in. That's what you get by default. Now, one of the options is get me to the regular CLI. And if I know the HP CLI command structure, I can just enter that and then I can do all my config that way. And that's something to work up to. But it will help you get an idea of how to set up your switch uh, from the CLI. So that's the first thing I like about it. Second thing I like about it is I think their web interface is actually pretty good. Uh, and so you can do, uh, I'll go ahead and say all the functions of the HP switch are capable of being configured from the web interface and it's pretty good. Um, and so I, I really like HP for that reason. That's my go-to standard if I need to switch somewhere. However, comma. The problem with HP switches are they don't integrate into the Unify control infrastructure. And so one of the things that's nice about Unify is that everything happens from your controller. And you can run the controller a couple different ways. So you can set up a cloud key, which is a dedicated ARM device that essentially does nothing but run, which is what I have in my house. You can set up a Debian box that runs the controller software, not Ubuntu box that runs the, the controller software, which is what we do at AltaSpeed Technologies. You can run that in a VM. You can run it on your local machine if you want to. They also have a cloud management system that you can use that, or they also support directly configuring the device now from their app 
on your smartphone, which I wouldn't recommend, but it's possible to do. The reason I don't recommend it is because the configuration is then stored on your phone. If anything happens to your phone, you lost the ability to reconfigure the device. You got to start all over again. Um, whereas with the controller stuff, that config is stored in the case of the cloud key on a little SD card. In the case of your controller, it's stored in, in, a, in a MongoDB database. Uh, so I, 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 for those reasons, because of all of that integration, I like Unify. If you were to buy a Unify gateway, if you were to buy a Unify switch, and you were to buy a Unify access points, and you bought a cloud key, the only thing you'd have to do is plug them all in to each other and just wait. And what's going to happen is the cloud key is going to discover, well, the router is going to discover the cloud key. The access points are going to discover the cloud key. And you're just, all you'd have to do is open the IP address up of your cloud key and watch as one device after another pops up and says pending adoption. Click on adopt and wait. And all the devices are now under the control of the cloud key. Now you can go into the cloud key and set up your SSID and set up your VLANs and set up your passwords and set up your user groups and set up your bandwidth limits if you want them. Uh, you, you know, all that stuff can be configured right from the cloud key. And anytime you want to add or modify your network environment, you just go to that single IP address, that single web UI, which is fantastic, by the way. And it will give you all of the ability to change. If you change the network ID, for example, it'll change all six access points in your house if you had six of them. The other thing I like about the Unify controller is it allows for, if you have the gateway, so if you have the Unified Security Gateway, the USG, it will also support deep packet inspection, which is very useful for troubleshooting. Your family says, hey, I, this computer doesn't stream Netflix or whatever. That, that, that DPI allows you to help kind of troubleshoot that and figure out what devices are eating up the bandwidth and, 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 and that kind of thing. So for, for all of those reasons, I'm a big fan of the Unify system. They just they really fall apart when you put them into large enterprise environments because they're just not designed for it. Okay. So, so these... Um Unified devices and mm -hmm. the cloud key is in fact the fire up and forget thing. Correct. Basically. I haven't. I I use mine and the if first I don't time. I've touched the it. cloud key. If I don't have the cloud key, I have to use my computer with that uh, virtual machine to configure them. Correct. You but would, I don't have to run this one all the time. Once I configured them, they can run alone. Basically. Yes. Right? Yes. However. If you do that, you will they will not the devices will not be in constant communication with the controller and so you lose logging functionality. The the the, the access points will report all sorts of things. So for example, if your neighbor fires up just as a, as an example, your neighbor fires up an access point with the same SSID as your uh, access point and they're trying to spoof your network and try to get you to connect and and try to do something bad, right? The Unify system will flag a rogue access point and send you an email and say, hey, there's an access point that has our network name and it's I don't know about it. So go figure it out and tell them to knock it off because it's going to cause problems. Um, the Unify controller will tell you if one of the access points goes down or loses connection or it becomes isolated. So maybe it has an SSID and it looks like it's up, but it's not talking to the rest of the network. All of those things are tracked by the controller and will notify you if any of those things changes. If you power the controller off, you won't have access to that. So every, the, everything will work just fine. Uh, you just lose some of the management and logging functionality and monitoring functionality of the controller. And because it's it's a very, very small piece of software, I mean, it, I, we have it running, I think on like 512 megs of RAM and like a 10 gig drive on a VM. I mean, just absolutely, you know, microscopic. Mm, okay. Okay. I see. I see. Well, that, I think that helped me a lot, in fact. So I will probably go Unify. Awesome. Okay. Thanks for thanks for okay. joining us. We appreciate it. 855-450-No, it's 855-450-6624. Tony from Toronto, welcome to the Ask Noah Show. 
Hi, Noah. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah, you bet. Uh, so, a question. So, we're deploying a voice over IP uh, system in AWS, and uh, we've successfully done it for a couple customers now, but one of the things I wanted to implement eventually was the ability to, uh, before we put in this voice over IP system, to be able to test this, the, their internet connection, because it is going over the top, and to be able to know, you know, what their connection to AWS is, and, and will it be sufficient, and can they expect the quality um, over the internet that, that, you know, they would expect from a phone system. Uh, I was hoping to maybe do something with like a Raspberry Pi, maybe deploy something and do some iPerf testing. I don't know if there's already a, a system out there that can essentially give me information like, uh, you know, latency, round trip delay, um, and stuff like that, uh, and preferably open source, right? Yeah, so um, so let's start with this. So, so let's talk about actual VoIP requirements. Um, what we tell customers when we manage VoIP systems for them is, if you want a if you want a if you want a reliable call quality system, you want a hundred kilobits per second per simultaneous call. Um, and so you figure out how many extensions are going to. And, and remember, if you store, if you're gonna, are you gonna run the controller on, on premise, or are you going to run it inside of like a VPS somewhere? Uh, it's in a VPS, so that's where the the PBX is, mm -hmm. and then their phones. It's pretty much only their phones connecting uh, through the internet uh, to Amazon Web Services, where I have, um, you know, the the server running. Sure. So the important thing to remember there is every piece of voice traffic is going to traverse the internet, and the reason I bring that up is a lot of people don't think about this. When Betty calls Sue, who's in the office right next door, it would seem like you wouldn't have to, like that wouldn't occupy a lot of traffic, but if the controller is in the cloud, the way that call is going to be established, now it's eventually it's going to create a link, but the way that college is going, the call is going to be established is it, it, it the, the phones are going to run that call through the PBX, so it's going out over the internet and then coming back into Betty and the the office next door, right? Um, so the, the first thing that you want to do is calculate how many how many users are going to be there, how many people are going to be on the phone at the same time, and then use that 100 kilobits per second as a bandwidth requirement to figure out if you're even there. You probably are. Most people are. Once you've done that, the second thing I tend to do is I simply run traceroute to the controller. How long does it take us to get packets from the office, from the central office, out to our PBX controller? And all of ours are hosted on Voltaire, so I'm in the same boat. They're all being running on a VPS. The reason we do that, by the way, if anybody is asking, uh, the problem with running it on premises, if your internet ever goes down, your phone lines are, are your phone system is dead, dead in the water. People are going to get a number has been disconnected or whatever it is your SIP provider uh, says, unless you have a failover route set up, which is an additional expense. The nice thing about running that controller uh, in in a cloud environment is because. The Voltaire, for example, is going to make sure that VPS stays up. And as long as the VPS is up, even if we lose internet in the office, even if I can't actually take the calls, at least they're hitting the at least they're hitting the PBX, and the PBX can say, oh, I don't have any extensions online. I better send those people to voicemail and tell them we're having technical difficulties and we'll return their calls as promptly as possible. And, oh, by the way, because that PBX is always online, I then get an email that we miss calls so I can start calling customers back. Oh, and by the way, because the VPS 
is on the internet, I can just connect to it with my phone's data connection, and I can still actually take calls. So none of that really even matters. Uh, so there's it's it's it, it it provides a level of redundancy when the PBX sits inside of a data center. So I always prefer to do it that way, but it does come with some additional challenges. And one of them, as you correctly pointed out, is latency. Um, a simple trace route will tell you. Um, what the latency is and what, you know, obviously what path it's taking. So you can kind of get an idea. And we do notate the big players in those hops. So if something goes down, you know who to call and say, hey, I noticed that, you know, I'm having a problem here. Could you please look into it? And, and we've had to do that a couple of times. The other thing you can do is pay attention, you know, obviously when you're placing your VPS, look in AWS and find the closest data center. Um, that will help those kinds of things as well. Um, and then after that, once you've once you've checked that, and by the way, you want your you want your latency to be below 150 milliseconds. If it's above 150 milliseconds, um, you're you're going to experience poor call call quality. But if you can get 100 kilobits per second um, bandwidth from each device per simultaneous call to the controller, and you can get uh, less than 150 milliseconds consistently. Uh, you'll be fine, and they won't have a problem. The only other thing I would recommend, this is a network thing, not an internet latency thing, is make sure to put your phones on a separate VLAN and prioritize that traffic. Uh, otherwise, what happens is, as Susie's trying to make a conference call with her, the lawyer, and you've got five people on this call, all of a sudden Betty decides that she wants to stream Netflix, and the call starts dropping, and nobody understands why, because Betty's in, her, in the back office on her laptop. Uh, so make sure to put that on a separate VLAN and make sure to prioritize that traffic. The other thing that we're seeing in new businesses, they don't do VLANs. They put a separate network drop altogether. So they have phones or the green jack and the and the uh, and the data jack is the blue one, and it's an entirely separate network just to make sure that that the voice calls have the highest priority. Um, so there's, but you can do it with a VLAN. So um as far as like you had mentioned, 150 milliseconds, right? Um, in order because in order to test that over a period of time, uh, like maybe throughout a day or two or three, would you recommend like uh, writing a script that'll do you know say uh, trace routes um, or pings every so often, or uh, just so that way I can know overall over the course of a day and not dur just during my sample period how how is it uh, performing? What are you What are you using for a PBX controller? Uh, it's Avaya. Avaya. Okay. Uh, I'm not familiar with the Avaya systems. Uh, everything that we use is all uh, is all SIP compliant. Uh, maybe Avaya is too. I don't know. But the um, but the the two controllers. It runs on CentOS, actually. Oh, it does. It does. I, yeah, yeah. So, and, I, and I get full access to the. Uh, uh, to the you know the, the terminals like I've installed Zabbix on and monitored uh, Avaya PBX through Zabbix and then I guess you have to do anything with Linux right? I might have to take a look at this. So I, I, I'm always interested in stuff, even if it's proprietary and I wouldn't use it. I would still like to check it out. Speaking of proprietary, the system I have the most experience on these days is 3CX, and uh, the reason that we use 3CX is be it came as a recommendation from Vox Telesis, who uh, you know those guys know and love Linux more than anybody else. But the truth is, 3CX just provides a better experience to those who want to do uh, a VoIP over like Free PBX, which is based obviously on Asterix, and so. Um, it 3CX is a proprietary product, and yes, they do charge for it, but the experience is just much better, and so I've used it. Now, in both free PBX and in um, 
3CX, they both have logging functionality and activity logging functionality that will allow you to log in and look at what those calls are doing and what network environment, what network things you're experiencing. And so um, my first step to, I mean, you certainly could just write a script and just say, hey, every 10 minutes test and see what the ping is. And over 48 hours, that should give us a pretty good indication, you know, or maybe a week will give us a pretty good indication of what the network environment looks like at that property. Um, but I, I tend to just go off the activity logs. The other thing I've noticed is, and this is, I, I admit this may be where I don't have enough experience in VoIP because it is relatively new and it's not our core competency. But the what I've noticed is if I go to a site and the first thing we do is we check the bandwidth and it comes out fine. Yep, everything is great. In fact, we're usually like 10, 15 times above where we'd ever need to be. And, uh, you know, we come back and install the phone, so we check it again. Everything's fine. We come back again and do a, you know, training and check it again, and everything's fine. By the time you actually get the phones installed, if there was a problem, you probably would have found it by then. Um, not that it's ever a bad idea to do some testing beforehand and, and try to get a real image, but I, I've we've yet to have a client. Like I say, maybe it's just dumb luck and inexperience, but I've yet to find a client that doesn't have an Internet connection that can support VoIP. Um, it's just not – I mean, we're talking about v- – very low bandwidth, it's just very important bandwidth. But most places easily can accommodate, you know, like a 10 or 15 uh, extension VoIP system without any problems. They're well, their internet that they provide are well in excess of that. Okay. And and as far as, like, uh, if you don't mind, I can ask just one more? Sure. So as far as, like, uh, uh if I were to put a router in the front to prioritize, like to do some traffic shaping for me, uh, would you recommend, what would you recommend, uh, maybe either a MicroTik or a uh, uh, Ubiquiti uh, Edge router? Or I typically use Microtech, and in Microtech, the quote-unquote vernacular is queues. That's what they that's what they use for 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 traffic shaping. Um, I, the all any 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 quality router is going to be able to do traffic shaping and is going to allow you to vo- prioritize VoIP packets. Um, I, I have the most experience with Microtech. It works great. I've never had a problem with it. It's a thirty-second thing to set up a uh, to set up an IP queue to say, hey, this particular VLAN. Uh, is gets tagged with these packets and these packets get priority. I mean, it's just it it's it's brain dead simple. Okay. All right. That's uh, that pretty much answers my question. Thanks uh, so much, Noah. Yeah. Thanks for the call. I appreciate it. Uh, so it has been a busy week this week for Richard Stallman. He stepped down from the Free Software Foundation, and uh, don't get me wrong, this guy has done a lot for the free and open source movement. And I'm very, very thankful about that. But, you know, Richard, I think his real value is he makes people think about free software and they ask questions. Even if they arrive at the same answers they arrived at before Richard got involved, he's, he's asking, he's making people ask questions. And there are a number of allegations that came out about him this week, none of which I'm prepared to talk about on the air because it's a family-friendly show. And if you want to research it on your own, if you care, you're welcome to do so. I will have it linked in the show notes for you to just because it is it directly relates to what has happened this week and part of why he's stepping down and and why there is so much criticism against him. So it's an important point. I don't want to gloss over it. I just I really think that we need to do a better job in the free and open source community of focusing on the positives that people do and not the negatives. And so are there serious allegations? Yes. Do I think that it is appropriate for him to step down and stop being in the limelight given uh, given these allegations and given some of his comments? Absolutely. Am I going to say anything more than that? No. 
change doesn't happen overnight. Because Richard and I, we have, for all the differences that we have belief-wise, I agree with his overall premise that we should try to convince people to utilize free and open source software. That change doesn't happen overnight. When you have somebody on the extreme end, and Richard Stallman is very much on the extreme end of FOSS, and they are trying to convert somebody from the opposite extreme, let's call it Windows or Mac OS, you don't make very much progress if you're not willing to compromise. If you're not willing to meet people where they are to begin with, you're just saying, hey, I'm way over here. You're going to have to come to me. You don't make a lot of progress. The reason that Microsoft Office established itself as the standard was because back in the 90s, Office built in the backwards compatibility to open Lotus 1-2-3 spreadsheets. And so there was very little friction for users that were previously using Microsoft Office to come over, or excuse me, previously using Lotus 1-2-3 to come over to use Microsoft Office. You want to know why G Suite is going to take over as the standard for Office for our kids? Same reason. They natively support DocX and .xlsx, and it works. And the conversion works very well. And so you have people that email a doc file around, and people that are on G Suite just open it right up, and it's and 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 now that becomes the new standard. And I fully expect it to be. And guess what the document default document format for Google Docs is? ODF, ODT, so ODP. If you're doing a presentation, so so I I really think that it's about meeting people halfway, about looking at something and saying, okay. This is where people are. Let's meet you and and meet your needs right now. And slowly over time, we'll pull you into the ODF standard. The idea is if so, look at some of the things that Richard Stallman has advocated for not putting passwords on computers. Every piece of software has to be free. I'm not sure that's a realistic goal today. I think that privacy plays a role in here. I think that people look to the FSF for privacy focus. I think that they produce some videos, some very well outlined videos on the importance of privacy. And so I think to simultaneously articulate that people shouldn't put passwords on their computers is silly and ridiculous. I think people should put passwords on their computer. I think they should keep their data encrypted and private. I think if possible, they should keep it completely offline. And I think that's going to resonate more with users than this idea of computers belong to everyone. Code belongs to everyone. Nobody can have anything to themselves. I I just... I don't think that's a practical stance to take right now. Stallman is Stallman is one of those people that would be much better suited as a myth or a legend in which we take the good parts that he's given us, distill it down and perpetuate that and talk about that and reference that and kind of ignore the bad parts because I think that some of his ideas aren't practical, but I think his passion is very respectable. And I think we have a lot to learn from people who have put that amount of thought into the ethics of software licensing. Would I love to live in a world where all freedom or where all software is possible? Yes, decidedly, yes. But can I tell you for sure that the best decision for every single business on the face of the planet is to license their software as FOSS? No, I have no idea. I don't know. I want people to choose FOSS. I have no interest in forcing them to use FOSS. As the old saying goes, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still, right? It takes work to make money with FOSS. I know because I do it. You actually have to compete in the market. You can't just, you don't get paid for the actual development. In fact, the coding itself is almost non-existent as far as value goes. Nobody wants to pay you in open source just for the code for the most part. It's the support, the infrastructure around it. 
we distill it into kind little terms. We call them community versions. That's the one that, you know, you can use for free and there's no support. And then you've got the real one. But if you understand if you're not doing the quote unquote real one, then you're not supporting that developer. And the FSF is going to make more progress with the targeted practical approach than the standpoint that that Richard Stallman takes. And so, you know, I think it's a good thing that he is stepping down. I'm glad to see that somebody else is going to pick up the reins. I am glad that he is leaving the FSF in the condition that it is, which is I think it's very respectable. I think people appreciate the FSF. I think people just don't appreciate his personal views. And uh, he was able to visit with Microsoft and get in front of an audience. And I think that is very valuable. And so I appreciate all of the things that he has done. I appreciate all the things that he's continued to do. But it is time. It's time to move on. Time to find somebody else to pick up that torch. He's done a good job for the past 20 some years. Let's move on. Hey, the Ask Noah show continues next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central. Huge thanks to Sarah, our call screener, JTR producer, Simon filling in. This hour of the show may be over. There's plenty more content for you. AskNoahShow.com. Ask Noah Show.